the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, riding dinosaurs, painting teenage zombie warriors, and bringing hope for liberty to patriots in dire straits. Plus, the complete audio presentation of excellent military fantasy short story, The Age of the Warrior, by Hank Reinhardt, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have an interview with prolific Bain cover artist Kurt Miller. Kurt's work has appeared on numerous Bain covers over the years. He's known for his ultra-realistic style and wonderful composition. Kurt's covers have graced many John Ringo books, including the entire Ghost series, as well as the Troy Rising series, and now John Ringo's most excellent science-based zombie series, Black Tide Rising, with latest entries, Under a Graveyard Sky, and To Sail a Darkling Sea. He's also done the covers on many Michael Z. Williamson Freehold Universe books, and on all of Tom Crapman's Carrera series. And Kurt created the beautiful cover on Robert Conroy's alternate history, Liberty 1784, that's currently at booksellers everywhere. Kurt fills us in on his past as a game illustrator, which is extensive, and talks about the dim origins of his art as a young boy with dyslexia finding a way to express himself. It's good stuff. And we also have the complete audio presentation of an excellent epic military fantasy short story by legendary writer and bladesmith Hank Reinhardt. This one is gritty, sword-fight-tastic, and adventure-filled, and I think you're going to like it. But first, Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. April is packed, tamped, and fused in the giant cannon that shoots months and is about to be launched flying through our windows. April, that is. That's a cannonball analogy, by the way. But don't fear, the coming month also brings the Bane April hardcovers and original trade paperbacks fast in its wake through the air in that analogy. We're very happy about Cauldron of Ghosts, the David Weber-Eric Flint collaboration. Laura, can you tell us about the Crown of Slaves series and what this entry has in store for our readers? Sure. This is a sideline series, sub-series, if you will, in the Honor Harrington universe. And Cauldron of Ghosts is the sequel to Crown of Slaves and Torch of Freedom. Follows the adventures of Anton Zulwicki and Victor Kashat as they go undercover to expose the Mason alignment. So you have the legendary spy from the People's Republic of Haven working with the legendary uh, force from uh, Manticore working together to bring down the Mason alignment. Yeah, and this is a, it's a really cool series. It's, it's one of my favorites in the Honorverse. We also have Robert Butner's new Orphan's Legacy series novel, Balance Point, and we'll have an interview with Robert Butner next week, I believe. In this one, military intelligence agent and man of action, Jason Parker, continues to fight for the forces of freedom in an interstellar Cold War. Complicating the picture is his partner and lover, sharpshooter Kit Bourne. Jason and Kit are separately trying to penetrate the nasty totalitarian planet Yavit and foil a plot that could turn Cold War II hot and nuclear and doom humanity's march to the stars. 
Sounds exciting. Hey, hasn't one of the Orphan's Legacy reviews said that Bob Butner has the Heinlein touch? Indeed it has, and he does. Uh, he has got a, a wonderful style that just uh, sparkles as you read these things, and it really does evoke a certain Heinlein uh, narrative drive and, and some of the same themes, of course, as well. And we have put that right on the front cover, of course. It says, Butner has the Heinlein touch. So, Cauldron of Ghosts by David Weber and Eric Flint and Balance Point by Robert Butner are available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Bain artist extraordinaire Kurt Miller to the podcast. Hi, Kurt. Hey, how are you guys? Well, Kurt Miller is the award-winning creator of dozens of Bain covers. The thing about Kurt is he's really prolific. He's done large amounts of art for games, books, computer games, you name it. His work is everywhere out there, and you've likely encountered it. Kurt is a graduate of the Maryland Institute College of Art, where he received an award of merit for outstanding achievement in illustration. And he's won other awards through the years as well, of course, professional awards. He's been in the visual communications field since 1990, going back to the days before the 3D generation era. Eight of those years, Kurt spent illustrating in the gaming industry, particularly for Avalon Hill, where he was lead illustrator. At Avalon Hill, Kurt illustrated entire board game packages. Later, he ventured into the computer and computer gaming world, and computers became a big part of his work. His covers for Bane are many and varied. They lately include the entire set of covers for John Ringo's science-based zombies series, Black Tide Rising. Uh, so you'll see four Miller covers this year coming out in each season. Uh, and for lots of other Ringo books, such as the Ghost series, etc., Kurt has done many Michael Z. Williamson Freehold Universe covers and most of Tom Crapman's Carrera series covers, maybe all of them, including my one of my favorite of all time is that Amazon Legion cover. And and there's lots more, including the cover of all the Bane books I have written, such as Guardian of Night, The Heretic, and The Savior, uh, both of those last written with David Drake. Kurt, your work is known for a kind of hyper-realism and, and enormous dynamism movement. Um, it always seems as if your characters, your spaceships, like jump out of the art. Um, you started out working a great deal with the airbrush. Was this style of yours a part of your art even before you moved over to computers? Yeah, well, um, more so with the vivid look um, I, and the composition. Um, but for the technical part, it's, there's been some uh, difference, um, mainly because I got into the, uh, the 3D realm. But um, back in the airbrush, uh, it, it's the, the, again, the composition and what I, I put into it. But I don't see myself ever going back to airbrush. Uh, you know, my mental health and, and the headaches that the airbrush uh, gave me back in the day, so working with friskets and all, I'm having so much fun with the 3D world and what I've gotten into. Yeah. Is, and, and digital. Is airbrush um, sort of, was that a natural transition to digital? Well, throughout the 90s and even through Avalon Hill, I, I you know, painted in oils and, and mostly an airbrush. And, I, you know, I, I saw, I, I saw my, then I saw myself working with that traditional medium, you know, for most of my life and, and never will venture into the computer. I was more so, I was kind of like intimidated by the computer. I would think never, never I would get involved in it. And so through most of Avalon Hill was airbrush. But then uh, towards the end, when uh, I was, I took a, a job change and went with uh, Talent Software Computer Industry, 
uh, an artist there and to do some of the, the 3D stuff and, and Photoshop. And that, that turned my world around. Um, you know, I, I learned and practiced and, and learned the 3D of, of Bryce, which um, opened up a new door for me. I can work faster. I can um, experiment more. Where in airbrush, you know, stray colors or mistakes, it's, it's really a pain to, to, to cover, to fix uh, errors. And computer with layers, and you can uh, go back in history and, and, and fix fix things much easier, much faster than I could with traditional. Uh, people were saying that, you know, well, aren't you nervous about it, you know, crashing on? You know, I, I have a, um, a system where it saves every every half hour, and I work under with uh, a battery backup. So if electricity goes out, the battery takes over, and I won't lose anything. And everything also goes into an external hard drive. Yeah, that sounds like the way I write as well. <laughs> I've lost too much to ever take a chance again. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I render stuff on the laptop overnight, so it's, it, you know, all this hard work I've done, and then it goes over. So you want that battery backup, and I'm not, it, it, I can sleep well at night, you know, knowing that it's not going to lose, you know, what I've, what I've created. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your development. I, I know that you're dyslexic. Um, how did that play into becoming an artist? Yeah, you know, my, my early days in, in elementary school, um, you know, I grew up in the 70s where they didn't really understood the dys dyslexia problems and how how to to achieve it. And um, I, later, as I you know, when I was older, find out the schools were were kind of communicating to my my family, saying that you know, if Kurt never pays attention and always draws, and if he keeps this up, he's going to be nothing but a janitor. <laughs> you know, here I am now reading manuscripts and and. You know, from what I read, you know, illustrating covers, uh, you know, go figure, you know, got to show that to the teachers that were saying that to my, my family. Yeah. Um, but, you know, see, I used to dyslexia with the problem of, of understanding what I read, um, reading and writing affects speech and, um, you know, grammar, where uh, I, I was so frustrated that, I, you know, to get away from the problems, I'd be doing a lot of, a lot of doodling and drawing. And, and that was sort of like my, uh, my, um, getaway of, of comfort. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was difficult growing up to around friends, kind of like hide the, hide the problems, didn't want them to see what kind of class I was going into. You know, that, that you know, special bus or that special trailer class that, you know, being making fun of. But um, drawing and, and coming up with something cool kind of took that away from all the friends of teasing me. And they're like, wow, this guy's great. Draw this for me and, you know, you got this superhero. So that kind of like put a cover on me from, you know, my, my difficult times in school. Well, when did, um, when did the, the, the light flash over your head and you realized, hey, I'm going to go to art school or uh, this is what I want to do? From all that practice, you know, all that drawing, uh, I got more serious in high school. And then I decided to um, uh, create a portfolio to um, enter in colleges. I, I knew I couldn't really afford these uh, private schools like Mail Institute and so on. And the best way of doing it is, is to perfect your skills and trying to um, win scholarships. And um, I was entering many. And I got a scholarship. got turned down, actually, from Maryland Institute the first go-around and was accepted by a small college. It's not existing anymore. Um, but back then, it was called Maryland College Art and Design around the uh, D.C. area. And for the two years, I worked really hard on my skills and my techniques and um uh, then enter my stuff to Maryland Institute, and that was when I was 
win a, a scholarship and awards and went there for three more years. And you wound up winning their, their big prize, it sounds like. Yeah, and there it's in, in, in getting out. Um, but the problem was, when I was in college, I made a mistake of not accepting uh, uh, interns, uh, free interns. Um, and again, I was always struggling and uh, making them to meet pay, paycheck to paycheck. And looking at jobs was important. And um, kind of regret not taking the free internship that was offered to me by Avalon Hill while I was in college. Because when I graduated, the first two years, I didn't have a job lined up. And here I'm shelving books, you know, at a bookstore, seeing all these great illustrators like Ken Kelly and, you know, Michael, Michael uh, uh, Whelan and uh, even, even Madeline at the time. And um, wanted to be part of that and want to be on the shelf with them. <clears throat> it was kind of depressing, but at the same time motivating me to um, – illustrate more and, and harder and, and send out promos. And that's when I was sending promos back to that, um, Avalon Hill. I was in Baltimore because, you know, my other passion was gaming and then the gaming industry. And um, they noticed one of my uh, pieces I did of, of Rommel, uh, Desert Fox, and um, they called me for uh, uh, an, what I thought was an interview. And um, so and at the time, I moved to Virginia, and I drove to Baltimore. And he wanted uh, the uh, president of the company wanted to know if I bought the piece, and I did. And he says, "Great, it looks good." And and wanted it for his CEO office. And here I thought it was, uh, you know, something for for a job, for for a cover, for a game. Wow! So the the president of Avalon Hill bought your uh, bought your piece. Uh, bought the piece. I was all excited, but at the same time, I thought it was going to line me up for a job. And yeah. it's like that's it. And that's it. Have a good day. So how'd you get on there? Um... And what what were some of the games you worked on also when you were when you started? Some of the games I worked on Avalon Hill. Yeah, how did you get on finally? I, I knew there? that this is the kind of stuff that they they wanted, so I ended up um, illustrating more of that subject matter, and then later on it, it, that planted me an interview to get on the job. I mean, the, the pay wasn't very good, but it but I understood the exposure and 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 under you know learning the the, the commercial world of it was was more important to me to get and to get published. And some of the games I, um, I, you know, produced out of there was uh, some of my favorites, uh, Age of Renaissance, the Squad Leaders, um, was really popular then from uh, Avalon Hill, the ASL boards. You d- you did the whole um, s- suite of images for a game, is that correct? Or <laughs> yeah, the whole shebang. So it's like the board, the cards, the counters. Uh, it's a lot of, a lot of work for an illustrator. Uh, it's great for a freelancer, and, and it, it's a good long project, and it's. Uh, it's a lot involved for, when it comes to art. Now it sounds like that book covers were always on your um, oh, were always on your radar. You say that you uh, you were liking them even right after college when you were you were seeing some of that cover art, that great cover art. Well, cover in general because um, <clears throat> that's you know, I feel it's my specialty of grabbing uh, people's attention. It's it's, it's my concept. The way I've designed things to grab, and then I feel my, the power of my illustration is more on covers than interior art. When did you move to doing book covers? How'd that come about? I, I, a few was done freelance, but uh, the bulk of it was when I went um, full fledged freelancing. And because um, uh, in house, I was away from a lot of that stuff. Um, of, of allowing to do other other work other than the in-house work, you know, work for hire. 
And then um, when I ventured into a computer game company, Telesoft, which merged into Tech2, uh, then I was uh, in charge of, of doing covers for the games. So that led into recognition of doing uh, covers and um, uh, promos for other publishers to recognize that I'm, I'm capable of doing covers. And then when um, Take-Two was downsizing in 2001, I, I took notice of that and started creating my portfolio and sending promos uh, covering myself in case the day would come of layoffs. And then 2003, the layoff happened. And then that's when I decided to go full-fledged freelancing and, and become my own boss. And that's when uh, uh, Bane noticed, uh, uh, Jim Bane noticed some of my promos that I was submitting and took me on board. And that's and since 2003, I've been working for Bane ever since. Cool, and we're glad. So, so how do you do it? Um, what's the process um, from receiving an assignment to turning in the cover? What are your tools and, and how you think about it? Well, um, you know, doing, doing covers, like book covers opposed to game covers, the games, it's, actually it's, it's, it's easier than doing book covers. Um, you have the subject matter right away and you can jump into it. But for, for books, you have to read the manuscript and, 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 and grasp it. And then one of the, the toughest part is actually coming up with the concept, the idea. And uh, that could take some time. And, and even if I'm reading through, taking notes and, and combining ideas, I'm also trying to motivate myself by going out to a bookstores all over and research the matter if, it's, if it has something to do with historical or, or, or seeing what's the, the, you know, the, end, the, the end look. But, uh, you know, doing the books, uh, reading the manuscript, coming the ideas, and then that's when I start playing around with um, the, the 3D, uh, building models for that I know that's going to be the main element that's going to be in the cover. And then I archive those and then piece together a, a rough, you know, and then from the rough, have them render. And then once the 3D part is finished and rendering, I import it as in PSD files and use the uh, Wacom tablet as you know, using my traditional script skills on top of the 3D to to put it all together combined yeah. as as a one as a one piece. So you sort of paint it or or brush it with, but digitally after you've you've got it. Well, digitally it, it, before and after. Um, digitally for 3D that you want to start painting textures um, that's going to be wrapped on the 3D model. So there is some traditional skills there, uh, and and I also archive those as textures. Um, uh, you know, I have a library full of textures. Either I photograph or I paint it or, or even purchase. Even supporting other artists in this, in this field where, look, time is hitting fast. I need something quick. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of building this, but I need to build that. And if they, you know, I uh, hire an artist, can you build me like a, a T-34 where I'm trying to finish up my, my Panther tank? And, um, and I would take that T-34 put my texture wraps on, on it. It's like literally wrapping on the 3D model. And, and if it's for sci-fi, I would morph it and change it. And again, it's just like building blocks on a computer. It's like sculpting on a computer. And then, and then I would archive those or render it to a scene, import it into a, a scene that's, that's a, a, a landscape scene, render that, and then import it into Photoshop. 
and then again back to my traditional skills, using my hand skills and painting and to to complete the image. Yeah. Do you think that um, thinking of it like a sculpture is um, one of the reasons that your work seems that that sort of ultra realism that your work conveys is it because you're creating a sculpture as in a manner of speaking? Yeah, uh, and, and it's great that the fact that you can look at this thing on its axis, on, uh, you know, you can rotate it. You're editing it right there on the spot. How fast that is, and that means you can do that in seconds opposed to, you know, sketching it out in pencil, and it, and, and it takes time. And sitting here, I'm doing it in seconds, just rotating it. And I'm like, whoa, snapshot that. That's a that's a good angle. Yeah. And um, and then, and then, then archive it or, or save it. Rotate again. There's another good angle. Save it, and then I can compare it, render those out, and compare what what's the best angle, uh, best composition, and then um, go from there. Uh, that I think is much exciting, and you just experiment more so than traditional. Yeah. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I do like traditional. Uh, you know, back in the days, you know, when I was painting oils, I, I do miss the smell of oils or, or, or and, and painting uh, and building up paint. But I, I will see. I see myself. Going back to full traditional, maybe in my retiring days when I'm not working commercially, working with illustration, doing fine artwork, I will I will go back into the traditional and leisure time, you know, much slower and more relaxing. This computer and, and illustration, it's like a business, and it, and things that speed is important uh, coming up, and, and working with that subject matter, it's you know it, it allows me to um, you know complete it. In a, in a, yeah, in a finite amount of time. <laughs> Let me ask you about composition a little bit, because, I mean, a lot of people are, you know, can use Photoshop, and we we see a lot of Photoshop art, and it's just static. Um, and, it, you know, it's just not so great. That, but yours is just pops, and it's it's amazing, um, your digital art. is is Does that come from traditional uh, study, or, 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 or do you know? <laughs> I think so. I, I think uh, even if you're in the computer, you should still know that you have that traditional skills and, and uh, uh, understanding art. I mean, because the, the, the computer allows amateurs to jump in right away and create something. Not necessarily it, it looks uh, professional. Uh, where traditional, you can, it, it's really hard to just jump into it. I mean, it takes practice and practice. But in computers, it's got all these tools and, and presets and stuff, and they can just jump in, throw something, create something right away. Um, but from an experienced eye, they know that there's there's not much study into it. There's composition and there's and, um, skills that are lacking. Uh, and so you 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 get a lot of these amateurs that that you know are, are, are pushing into it because of you know the fact that you can jump into a 3D or, or uh, you know a program like Photoshop. Uh, with skills, um, traditional skills. I mix my, my traditional skills with the 3D. I mean, in, in Photoshop, I mean, I, I use a wax tablet, so I'm still painting mm -hmm. from the knowledge that I have and the knowledge I know of art and composition. What about models? Um, I know that uh, digital artists use them pretty often in, in book illustration. Well, any kind of artist uses them pretty often in book illustration. Do you seek them out for various projects, or do you have a bank of images? How does that work? Uh, you mean like live models yes. for... for um, for, for characters. Yeah. Or are you talking about 3D models? No, I'm talking about characters, uh, humans. <laughs> Real live models. Um, you know, that's fading. Uh, now I, I only use models that 
people that I know that want to be part of a cover, like like yourself, the uh, guardian of your wife. Um, you know, it, it, and it didn't really have to, but it's something that want to be part of. It. And, and you know, you want a beautiful character on there too, so you, you have that and you, you use them. But because of 3D, I have models already that I built and sculpt and archive, and and now I use that instead of, of real life models of, of you know advertising. Hey, I need such and such model for this and waiting for, you know, and, and, you know, looking and interviewing different models to come in. That takes time. Also, what takes time is, is building up a, a studio, you know, and collecting um, camera equipment. Um, that also is money and time. Here, I have the, all the lighting you can even imagine in the 3D program. I'm not going to adjust it. Or a model, you know, a, a certain pose you need to take over and over, like, a pose like in the, like they're flying in midair. Here in 3D, I don't need to do that. I mean, it's it's 3D that I don't need to have a, a live person actually jump and take a snapshot. Here I can, uh, you know, edit it and move them in any parts of their joint in, in, in my comfort on my chair. You know, the, for, for people that I like to be part of a cover, what I do is I, I take photo frontal shots of portrait shots and um, <clears throat> use that to wrap on the 3D model. And here I have that person and I can animate them any way I, would, I wish. Well, let's uh, let, let's talk about uh, Guardian of Night cover since you brought it up and it's, a, it's an interesting uh, anecdote. Uh, this is my book, Guardian of Night, which was out from Baina uh, last year and the year before. We went through a lot of ideas about the cover, and in the end, we did what Tony wanted, of course. <laughs> My boss, Tony Weisskopf, and the art director, as well as publisher here. And when we did, you um, you know, I I had been conceiving this one character sort of looking like my wife, uh, Rika, and uh, you were open to the possibility of working her in on the cover. Was it, um, did you feel like I was pushing this on you, or did you? Oh, no, no not, not at all. I mean, I, I think it's exciting. I mean, it's fun to have, you know, uh, people you know to be on a character, you know, be a character of the book or be on the cover. I mean, my uh, my niece, Static, that I was able to use her for the John Ringo um, cover for um, uh, Sail in the Darkling Sea. And, um, uh, you know, I had an issue here, here again. I didn't have the uh, the appropriate model bank for a 13-year-old. And I advertised for 13. I just wasn't having any luck, and people were looking at me like I'm some kind of pervert or so. And <laughs> I was having issues. It was a difficult time finding, a, a, you know, the right model for um, for for that cover. And um, I couldn't rely on. I, I was under a time pressure because it would take time to to build a 3D model of a 13. I had plenty of archival models of of an older. Uh, older sex, but uh, for someone that that age, uh, that's the time I had to rely on on, on real models, and um, I was able to um, model the the figure itself. But then uh, my sister was able to take some shots of her daughter to send, and I was able to um, to um, wrap it and attach it to the 3D model for the cover, and, yeah. and likewise for your cover. That's that's book two of uh, John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. Um, the um, the book. So you were the main character. A couple of the main characters are teenage girls in in that 
um, book, the the two heroines and their father. That's the it's a family that's that's out on the sea fleeing and then fighting zombies after a sort of science based uh, apocalypse that they face. So you got some odd reactions when you were trying to find the models for those. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, I can understand, and I don't blame it, and it's a, you know, paranoia, why, and, 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 you know, why do you need this person to come to your house, and so, I mean, it's, I, I can see how that looks, you know, odd to, to a stranger, they don't know <laughs> me, I don't know them, Yeah. I'm trying to look for, because, you know, I don't, I don't have children, I don't have, you know, friends that have children. So I had to advertise sort of that and, 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 and look at it. I mean, I can understand that there's some concern uh, from what's going out there, what, what, what others were used to for their own, you know, um, sick-minded, you know, ways. And it kind of gives us a bad name. Uh, it makes us look bad where I'm, you know, I'm for real. And I really do need someone for, you know, for such assignment. And it, it made it very uncomfortable for me. And I didn't like that experience. And I was I was happy to you know never want to go through that again and and always just rely on my on my 3D model. I'm gonna to have to write a story with a 12 year old for you to. <laughs> All right. Um. So what about under a graveyard sky? Uh, this cover is I I think it's one of my favorite uh my two favorite um, Kurt Miller covers are um, under graveyard sky and that Amazon Legion poster cover which is wonderful. Um, how, how did you work on that, getting that sort of bedraggled, wise uh, young girl? Um, it's just, a, it's really evocative, that, that image of her. Most pieces that I work on that I think it's not my best or my greatest turns out to be my best, my greatest that wins the most awards. And it, it always seems to work that way. Um, Larry, I was working on this piece, didn't think this was going to be much of anything. And um, and, it, and here I, I see it getting into um, the side of illustrators and, and Spectrum and other awards. And it just, it, you know, sometimes I just can't understand it. I guess if I think this is not my best, it turns out to be my best. Well, what was the what was the process? Tell me about the Amazon Legion poster, uh, which I use all the time in the newsletter, by the way. Well, here, um, let me um, open up that piece there. This one, um, if you go to my website too, you would see um, many roughs and how I, I um, work the, the, the model of the tank into the piece and, and the roughs that were submitted for the uh, for the cover. Um, it's on my website under Amazon Legion. How? What is your website? Let's tell just tell everyone that. Oh, it's kmistudio.com. Um, and here, if you look at the models. Some of the models are some of the, the, the models I did for historical, um, I have archived historical tanks that are actual real real uh, equipment that has to be accurate. And then I take it and, and make it a science fiction vehicle out of here. It saved a lot of time in that it will come close to the description of Tom's um, vehicles. Tom will, will, will give me a list of vehicles to, that I, you know, that, most of them are, are tend to be Russian Russian vehicles, which I already have an archive from from previous jobs, and and just gotta go ahead and morph and and, and change elements on it to to give it a, a, a futuristic resemblance. Which of your covers do you like the best that you've uh, that you've done for Bain or elsewhere? Amazon are good, but I, I like some of the um, 
my um, historical pieces um, that I did for um, Robert Conroy's the board games, uh, Blue Max. Ah. I like I like the, uh, the the um, World War One aviation um, piece, and some of the uh, the band covers. Uh, one of my favorites are, are um, Liberty, 1748. And it's funny that I'm doing this this, this stuff for um, for um, Conroy. Uh, some of the stuff that like the Rising Sun. Mm-hmm. They looked at that, not knowing it's for an alternate history. It looks like, hey, this guy doesn't know his history very well. Didn't have like a, um, an air battle over San Francisco. And so, <laughs> so, it did in Conroy it, world. It, 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 the research is very important. I mean, hey, this is a good way of losing the clients. So, you know, I, I'm supposed to do a historical piece here. I, I'm illustrating a king tiger on a beachfront on Iwo Jima with the American Marines. I mean, that's a good way of losing a client, and that's and how embarrassing that will be to not doing your research properly. But in that case, that was uh, an alternate history piece, and um, you know, that's something that, that relates to the book and not accurate for the history. Yeah, that's the Rising Sun cover. That was a super cool cover. By the way, the uh, the Liberty uh, Liberty hardcover right now, Liberty uh, 1784, is um, is number one best selling science fiction hardcover at the moment out there, and I think your cover has something to do with that. Yeah, it maybe had a lot to do with patriotic, you know that that um, you know, how dare you disrespect, you know, disrespect the American flag in the middle of this fight, and he's you know taking uh, taking hits, and here he is. All he's thinking about is is protecting the flag. Yeah, and taking taking the battle back. It's because the, the conceit of the book is that America lost the Revolutionary War, but they're still fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, the patriots are still fighting. And they may or may not achieve their goals. You have to read the book to see. But, but it's, a great, it's a great cover. Can, tell us a little bit about, um, well, let me ask you the obligatory question of uh, how do you recommend young artists or artists that are trying to get into uh, into book cover design book cover uh, illustration or other other kinds of illustration what should they do how do they go about it well my my experience uh, what worked well is, is is trying to find an in-house job um, jumping into freelance could be uh, very um, uh, it, it's 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 a huge risk when when you, when you get into an in-house job um, that's, there's a lot of game companies out there to hire in, in-house illustrators, and there you can work your way to uh, do a, a game package or, or a cover for for the package. Um, Fantasy Flight, I think, is out there that they have in-house illustrators, in-house art. Um, look, research a lot of board game publishers, especially the bigger ones, um, and then see if there's any job openings there. Um, a lot of the computer games um, companies have a big art department. So anything with, a, with an art department is a good way of building a portfolio, building experience, and working your way to cover Because jump right into freelance right after school, uh, it, that could be a huge mess. And um, unless you, 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 know, you get lucky and, 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 and a rep find you right away out of college and want to represent you, but to do it on your own, um, it, it could be... Um, more disappointed than, than good. I, I, you know, again, just from my experience, I think going in, in-house. Yeah, starving would we'll be one of the consequences <laughs> of... Uh, of. At the same time, while you're in-house, and this is what I did too, I, I um, 
did some freelancing. Just be careful on, on the contract you hire and, 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 and you know, work for hire. It's like you're not allowed to, to freelance. But if you if you freelance, make sure it's not with the same genre or something that's um, totally not competitive to what you're working for. And um, and that's a good practice as well when you get out because you don't want to stick with one genre. When you get out, you want to mix it, have a big bag of mix because when one lacks, the other picks up. So not just stick with book covers and, and with the book industry. Mix it up with other you know, advertising. I mean, you're an illustrator. If an illustrator creates an image, it doesn't have to just stick with the gaming industry or the book publishing industry. You know, mix it up with advertising or greeting cards or editorial for magazines. I mean, I've done stuff for National Geographic, uh, military officer magazines, editorial stuff. So have a lot of arrows in your quiver as much as you can. Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, like when I'm not getting a, a, a game product or a book cover, I'm, I'm mixing it up with other you know, other. And I, and I find this mistake that some illustrators make, especially the ones that are in the in the gaming industry. They just stick with the gaming industry, and they're having a hard time. They have to get a second job to make ends meet, um, but they don't they don't broaden their you know their horizon. Yeah. Well, what are what about you? What are some of your influences, uh, both artists and and just stuff? My influence, what influenced me into art? I mean. Uh, um, who, who influenced most of it is an airbrush artist. Um, this is when I was working with airbrush. Mark Fredrickson, have you ever heard of him? I vaguely, yes. <laughs> yeah. For, um, uh, and the oil painter, Jane Deets, uh, for a lot of the military stuff, uh, military art. Um, the older one's always Norman Rockwell, was always my, <clears throat> my big favorite. Really, I can totally see that. You have, man, you have a lot of the same qualities as Rockwell now that you mention it. Yeah, concept and details, um, and, and, and storytelling, um, and, and the subject, uh, it's what it fascinated me about Norman Rockwell. Uh, some of the science fiction artists, like Jen Burns, a uh, uh, British artist, um, uh-huh. Ken Kelly, that was my favorite. And even some today, that, uh, what they use, uh, Madeline's my, it's always been my favorite, even before I, uh, you know, got on board with Bane Books. David Mattingly? Yeah, uh, yeah. Alan Pollard, he's another one. I mean, he's worked for, uh, he's in the gaming industry uh, for Magic, and now he's doing stuff for me. Well, when you um, when you did the cover to, uh, to to my latest book, The Savior, uh, me and David Drake's book, uh, you you created an illustration that I hadn't finished writing the book yet that I wrote to. Um, have you had that experience with other artists? I mean, other uh, writers? create an image with, with something that's not finished. Yeah, and then they, they sort of write it into the book. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, I mean, not too many tell me. Uh, I mean, I like to hear more about it. I mean, that's exciting um, <laughs> if it does happen. Uh, I, you know, it's, that's kind of rewarding for me. How do you work with the writers in general? I know it's very different at Bain than a lot of, of I mean, there's, there's a couple of ways of doing it. Sometimes... I uh, the book is not ready. Uh, they don't have any material, and that's when. Uh, and this is what's nice about Bain. I'm able to uh, directly talk to to the author and and, and, and pick their mind and get, and gather ideas, or they just send me bits uh, and pieces, and I'll go ahead and, and and create some models and 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 design it sort of like what I did with you for that pyramid. It's like, you know, is, is this something you had in mind? I mean, of before you, you go ahead and write, I mean, is this something like a structure that, you, you know, you're looking at? 
and these are like grayscale uh, 3D models that I will go ahead and, and create and, and, and collect and, and use for, for Rust. Other ways that they do have a manuscript, there is something, and then I go ahead and read the whole thing. And then there's um, art directors that's like they don't you know, really want you to read the book, and they have ideas. Um, that's usually the risky one. Uh, usually, it, it, sometimes it comes with marketing ideas, and, and it's not really related to the book. That kind of makes me nervous. Um, I, I like I, I, I get embarrassed if I do an illustration and have nothing to do with the book. I mean, that to me is a big, uh, complete failure. Even if they think it's a great illustration and it looks good on the shelf, but if it doesn't relate to the book, I, I, I would disappoint too many uh, customers. Is there anything, uh, before I close out, is there anything else um, that we should bring in that you want to? Well, um, to get back to the uh, um, uh, you know, traditional versus um, uh, computer, I, you know, I, I noticed like it, when I, one of the things I wanted to mention, if I remember uh, when I was into Airbrush, when Airbrush was introduced, Back in you know like in the 80s or so, it, it was not really recognized as you know to be uh, rewarded as one of the you know the mm -hmm. art medium, and then it's now accepted everywhere. And I, I feel the same thing with 3D. When I'm, I'm now I'm into the 3D, this just seems like when it's time to be juried into a show, uh, especially for like something like Society of Illustrator in New York, it just seems like it's not the one that's not recognized to most. Uh, jurors is to be part of part of the art world. Uh, I think it's the lack of understanding it and how it works to them. They think if they're not it, not understanding it, they think it does the work for you. Um, I've given I've gotten many emails and say, "Wow, how did you get the railroad tycoon piece in Style Illustrator? I mean, it's a 3D piece. It's something that we're not used to seeing in, into a show." And, uh, and I agree with myself here about hearing about that. It's like you know that it's something that uh, I like to see more of it getting accepted and, and appreciated as, as, as art and, um, you know, as a creative piece. Well, yours, but, um, yours certainly does these days, right? Spectrum, the, uh, it's still a battle. It's still, it's, I, I, you know, maybe one piece or, or get in it. It's still, I'm having a hard fight. If I've done my, enter my airbrush piece or some more of my traditional, it, it's, I see it gets in much easier in quantity, <clears throat> but far as getting a quantity in, and actually winning that gold or that silver, I'm finding that the 3D part of it, it's, it's the one that's always getting knocked away. And I think when a new generation of jurors and artists coming in and during the show and have that background, have that knowledge, it will be accepted more often. Well, you certainly win the award for beautiful uh, storytelling illustrated covers for Bain Books. Yes, and I, and I truly enjoy working for Bain. That's one, it's one of um, it's the top of my uh, favorite client and to work with. Tony is it's, it's a blast to work with. I love her uh, direction and, and art directing. Um, and it, 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 and how she allows me to uh, you know work with with you guys and you know you like yourself as a as a writer and, and creating a, a great piece for you know for your market. So, what what are some upcoming projects you're working on? Well, I got right now. I'm finishing up a a, a zombie uh, board game, and um, this was kind of interesting. Where uh, they decided to put it on Kickstarter, 
where people can um, photograph their own house or their own business and want to be part of the uh, zombie apocalypse and being boarded up and and trying to survive in this in this game. So here they have their business or their home. So I'm, I'm getting photos. I'm getting Google Google Earth, zoom in, looking at. So I'm building each of these people's uh, um, um, homes and business and incorporate it into the board of the game and to be part of it. One of them is um, <clears throat> a wedding supply store, and this is their way of telling their family when the game comes out and, and they're going to play it with their family and to introduce to them that we're getting married. You know, here they are surviving and <laughs> if we can survive a zombie apocalypse, we can survive your wedding. Running into a, a, a wedding, a wedding supply store, and it's all boarded up, and and on the name it has their name and that their family were recognized, and this is their way of, of sending the message that we're getting married. Oh wow, I see. Well, <laughs> that's super cool. That's a great project. Bain cover artist extraordinaire Kurt Miller's work can be seen on a host of Bain books from John Ringo to Robert Conroy to Michael Z. Williamson to Tom Crapman and to me and David Drake um, and beyond. Thanks again for being with us today, Kurt. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And we also have the complete audio presentation of an excellent epic military fantasy short story by legendary writer and bladesmith Hank Reinhardt. It's called... The Age of the Warrior. The Age of the Warrior by Hank Reinhardt Read by Jeff Aguiar The chatter and gaiety of the feast had been stilled, and although the candles still burned brightly, fear and apprehension darkened the great hall of Castle Glown. Rank was forgotten as lord and lady, townsmen and guardsmen mingled in small, quiet clusters. The low murmur of their voices would still as the door to the ducal chambers opened, but picked up as soon as only a serving-man or maid appeared. The evening had started out well enough. Lyof II, King of Livane, accompanied by his retinue and the Duke of Jagai, had arrived earlier in the day. The Duke of Glown had been well prepared for his royal guests, and the feast he had served was splendid. The recent treaty between King Lyof II and Tagai, King of the Shang, was an event to be well remembered, and the Duke had spared no expenses to celebrate it. It was right after an impromptu wrestling match won by Asgalt, Duke of Jagai, against a young guardsman that the blow fell. A messenger arrived bearing the ill news that the Shang had invested Castle Kells, and it looked as if the castle would fall within a few days. Pandemonium broke loose, and the king with his closest advisers retired to the private chambers of the Duke of Glown. In the chambers the king sat hunched over a table, poring over a map as if seeking to change the very lay of the land with his thoughts. Around the table stood several of his ministers, while in the corner the two dukes engaged in a heated argument. The king glanced with annoyance at the two men, and with a tone of less than regal forbearance snarled, "'Will you two stop that damned bickering and get over here? The whole kingdom is threatened, and you two argue over propriety?' Asgalt, about to make a point, stopped in mid-sentence and looked at the king. "'Sire, I do not argue. I merely defend myself.' The Duke of Glown, Colwyn by name, 
bowed from the waist and answered, "'Your pardon, sire, but I feel that it is unseemly for a duke of the realm to wrestle a common guardsman, even if the man is a champion.' Asgalt grunted in disgust. "'Bah! You only object because I win.' Lyolf glared at the two, then in his most kingly voice, "'We do not care about wrestling or the proprieties. We do care about advice.' Colwyn, Duke of Glown, walked over with dignity and stationed himself behind the king. He was a tall man, with hair as white as snow, and a face lined with years of care and worry. However, the Duke of Jagai merely ambled over to the front of the king and stood looking down at him. He saw a man full-grown, calm and stern, well-suited to rule, but in his mind's eye he also saw a young boy gulping up at him in awe and wonder. Asgalt pointed to the map. Look, you can see what has to be done, or at least tried. The king shook his head. I said no. Asgalt slapped his thighs with anger. He was a large man with cold blue eyes shaded by iron-gray hair, thick-necked, running into massive shoulders and chest with arms to match. Only the iron-gray of his hair and the thickening midsection betrayed his age. He turned away, then turned back again. You young puppy! Were you not a man grown, I'd shake some sense into you, king or no. By Kimwalt's eyes, all you have to do is look! The ministers glanced at each other in embarrassed silence, but the Duke of Glown spoke up in shocked reprimand. Your Grace, you can't speak to the king like that. It isn't proper. Asgalt swelled and roared. Proper? Proper? With Shang soon to be riding through every hamlet, butchering and pillaging till their black hearts contented, you say proper? He shook his head in wonder, then continued in the same roaring voice. Colwyn, you were one of the best fighting men I have ever seen, but... His voice trailed, and he spoke to the king in a lower voice. Do you remember when Colwyn and I held the breach during the siege of this castle? Fifteen years ago it was, and he wanted me to stand to the left rear as he was borne to the ducal chair. The king, despite his woes, grinned. He had heard this story at least once a month for the past fifteen years. But then reality returned, and his face tightened. Enough of this! Tagai has broken the treaty. The Shang are marching, and the kingdom has to be warned and the levy raised. I don't have time to sit and listen to your constant bickering. Asgalt nodded, dropped his pretended fury, and spoke seriously. No, you don't. Nor do you have time to send a messenger the long way around the Blue Mountains. The Shang are already at Kells, and before you could move the long way around, they will be here, and the main army will be moving. Before the levy is raised, Levain will be open. He continued, The only way to better the time is over the Pass of Jagai. Once through, and the Shang can be avoided by a good man. The levy can be raised by the time the Shang reach here. We could easily catch them here, and there is only one man who knows the pass. Me. Lyoff sat and never spoke. 
All there knew his concern. Asgalt had been a close friend and advisor to his father. Indeed, he was responsible for his father gaining back the throne after the rebellion. But Asgalt had aged, and the journey he spoke of so easily was hard on even a much younger man, and the Shang were out in force. In the end it was Colwyn who forced the issue. Sire, the Duke is right. Tis the only chance that we have. The course of action is plain. You leave at once taking the long road, and Asgard leaves for the pass. Lyulf nodded in final agreement. He looked at Asgalt, and his face softened. Have a care, old warrior. Remember that a young king still needs old friends. The duke grinned back at him, and for a moment his hard, craggy face looked boyish. Old? Ask that young guardsman. He thought I was old, but his back and shoulder will tell him different this night. Then take him with you. He looked tough as boot leather. Asgalt ruefully answered, He is. The morning sun had not yet risen as the king and Duke Glaun watched Asgalt and Flan ride from the castle. The king shook his head in fear and spoke to his companion. Tis a fear, good duke, that we may not see Asgalt again. Strange, that yet again the fate of this land rests on the shoulders of an outlander. Colwyn nodded his agreement. There are no stronger ones for it to rest on. He paused, then continued. He seemed more than merely eager to go. Is it that he fears his age, or is it his hatred for the Shang? The morning fog had lifted, and now the sun shone warm. They rode at a steady pace, rarely speaking, each in his own thoughts. At noon they dismounted for a quick meal and to walk the horses. Flan, the guardsman, was a tall youth, wide and rangy in appearance, with jet-black hair and matching eyes. He looked at the duke, then spoke. Tell me, your grace, how is it that a chief of the Hagahai becomes a duke of Levain? That lad would take some telling. I'm not a Hagahai, but a Brakit. I joined one of their raiding parties to settle a personal score against the Shang. Well, one thing led to another, and I ended up as chief. It was a good life. All the Hagahai want to do is drink and fight. I'd probably be there still, but a Shang raiding party hit us one night. They killed everyone but me. They planned on strangling me, then stuffing the carcass. He chuckled. That was a mistake. I broke loose. Killed a few more. I wandered a few years and ended up in Livain, serving in the army. It was at Iron Mountain that I met old Lyulf. The line broke, and it was clear that the rebels were winning, so when the whole army broke and ran, I tried to stay alive. A couple of days later, I came on a man trying to fight four of the rebels and protect a boy. I killed the rebels, and the man followed me. He laughed outright. It was a damn month before I found out it was the king. Old Lyulf was a cagey devil. His mind drifted back over the years, and he spoke in a low reverie, forgetting he had an audience talking more to himself than to Flan. Five years we wandered and fought hiding out in hills and caves and with a few loyal to the crown. Finally, we had an army, 
and we caught Morgon at Whitewater Flats. What a battle that was! <laughs> I killed Morgon. Dambo cut him near in half. But enough of me. How is it that a man of Livale ends up in Livane? Flan smiled. Not much to tell, your grace. The wanderlust that hits many a young son of a poor farmer. I roamed a while, tried the sea, but my stomach didn't care for it. I fought with Lord Conlanac, was with him at Colnar Ridge. Got away, wandered a bit more, then ended up in Glown. The Duke hired me. He then added with a smile. He was impressed with my wrestling. Asgot laughed, a full-throated bellow. I knew that old devil was trying to set me up, and he damn near did. You almost had me, but I tricked you. You wrestle well. All you lack is age and experience. Next time, your grace, I'll try not to be tricked. They continued on, and soon the land began to change. The rolling hills gave way to open woodland, and this in turn to lowlands with rich and fertile valleys. This was beautiful land, but now the beauty was marred by signs of war. Burnt farms, scattered livestock, and whole villages put to the sword. The occasional stink of death they encountered as they passed a burnt-out steading soon gave way to a horrible stench that filled the air and seemed to get into their very pores. Death was all about them. Asgalt reined in his mount. Now tis time to arm. Shang are all about, and we'd best keep a sharp eye. Quickly they stripped the pack pony and each donned his mail shirt, steel helmet, and slipped their shields onto their backs. Their spears they set horizontally, so that they wouldn't project upward and give warning of their presence. The duke cut the pack pony loose and sent it running with a slap on the rump. From here, it's two days' ride, then a climb up the mountain, across the bridge, and it's over with. All we need to do now is avoid the shah. The stench grew worse as they neared the outskirts of a small village. They passed death in its most grotesque forms, bodies lying with complete abandonment, bloated bellies thrusting at the sun. Neither spoke. Flan, with grim indifference, passed the scene. But Asgalt's face grew flint-hard, and no expression crossed it. As they neared the crest of a small hill, they could hear the sounds of battle on the other side, screams and curses and yells of agony. Quickly they reined in and slipped from their horses, crawling stealthily to the top of the hill. The last act was played as they watched. One man still stood, jabbing feebly at the circling Shang warriors. At his feet lay a young girl, wide-eyed with terror. A warrior casually parried the spear, then slashed downward and the man fell, blood spurting high in the air from a severed neck artery. The Shang circled the girl, making false attempts to grab her and laughing at her frantic movements. Flan started to rise, but Asgalt pulled him down. He turned angrily. Why? There are only five and we can hit them before they know what's happening. Asgalt pointed to his left. In the distance, a large party of mounted men could be seen. I feel as you do, but I have a kingdom to worry about. If we're caught, it could happen to the whole land. The girl's screams caused them to look up. The Shang were now close about her, poking with their spears. 
Suddenly, Asgalt stood up, and now his fury was real. He reached down and dragged the startled Flan to his feet with one hand. Kimwald's balls! The day I can't kill five and outright a hundred, the kingdom can fall! Ride, damn you, ride! Grab the girl and ride! The Shang were still laughing and jabbing at the girl when the two hit them. The first died, never knowing what the strange pointed thing was that suddenly grew from his chest. The second turned, saw a flash, then nothingness engulfed him. The third screamed, parried a slashing sword, then had his neck broken by the edge of a shield. The fourth saw only a gray-haired demon suddenly appear and kill three of his companions when a sword lashed out and cut deep into his side. He looked up in bewilderment, saw a pair of jet-black eyes, then life left him. The fifth almost made it, turning and galloping for the body of men in the distance. He fled for his life, but Asgold wanted it also, and his sword took the man cleanly at the juncture of neck and shoulder. Asgold reined in the Shang horse and led it back to Flan and the girl. Mount up and ride. They've seen us. He nodded over his shoulder. Into the hills. We can cut over and hit the main trail by tomorrow. The night was cold and Asgalt cursed the Shang, the damp and the very small fire. He was tired. The ride had been long and hard, but so far they had outdistanced the Shang. He looked at the two across the fire from him. The girl and Flan huddled close under a cloak and Flan obviously enjoying it. The girl, Aethne, a baker's daughter, had been visiting an uncle when the Shang attacked. She had fled with several others, only to be caught out in the open. The girl shivered under the blanket and asked, Do you think we've gotten away? Flan shrugged. Ask the Duke. I've never even seen Shang until today. The Duke? And her eyes grew wide. Your Grace! And she made a motion as if to rise. Stay seated, girl. It's too cold and late for such nonsense. Asgalt warmed his hands on the small blaze. No, one thing you can say for the Shang, they never quit. I'm surprised that that one tried to run away. Never saw one break and run before. They're out there. My fear is that they know where we're headed. Flan snuggled the girl closer and asked, Why? And what is this pass of Jagai that we're headed to? It's a pass up the mountain. No one knew of it until old Lyolf and I stumbled on it. The Shaun can't use it as their cavalry, and no way you can get horses up it. We got to the top, then found there was a damn deep gorge. All the way to the bottom of the mountain it falls. I managed to get across it. That is how we got back into Livain after the rebellion. Later we built a bridge. Once across, we're in Jagai. I keep a way station about three miles down the mountain, so it'll be an easy walk and an easy ride to Jagai Castle. If they realize that's where we're headed, they'll have the whole army trying to stop us. Once we get across, the army can be raised and the whole attack is ruined. Asgalt looked longingly at the fire, wishing it were larger, then doused it. Now get some sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a bad day. Dawn broke cold and clear, and when Asgalt awoke, Flan and the girl had already made another small fire. He was stiff, and his back hurt. 
Damn ill-trained horse, he muttered as he tried to stretch himself into some semblance of a man rather than an aching mass of bones. He was peeved that they had awakened before he did. Usually he awoke first and fully alert. But now he felt that he needed more hours of sleep. He was groggy and only half awake as he munched his meager breakfast. They mounted and began a slow, tiring ride up the hill. The terrain was rocky, with little clefts and culverts down a short, steep incline, then up a longer, steeper one. But slowly they climbed higher and higher. They rounded a bad bend, and the mountain loomed forbiddingly over them. They paused to rest the horses, and Asgolt was quite pleased when Flan suggested it. While the horses drank from a small mountain stream, the duke looked back down the trail. Flan, come take a look. I can't make out anything, but do you see something? Seems to be some movement. Flan shaded his eyes. Shang, a large party. Anywhere from fifty to a hundred. They know. Best get moving. They camped that night under an overhanging rock. Not having planned on the girl, they found their supplies were quickly giving out. The Shang horse had had no food bag. It seemed to Asgolt that he had just fallen asleep when Aethne was shaking him. Your grace, time to be moving. The Shang followed into the night. Asgolt rose quickly and his body protested. Pain shot through his back and his elbows and shoulders felt as if they were locked in irons. What? How do you know? Flan spoke quietly. I awoke early, slipped down the trail, saw them. They gained quite a bit on us. The duke nodded. Let the horse go. From here on up we have to climb. One more day, then we can be over the bridge by mid-morning of the next. Flan discarded his armor and shield, keeping only his sword and spear. He suggested that Asgolt do the same, but the duke shook his head. No. I've had both for twenty years, and when they build my cairn, I want them inside, and I need the axe. The climb was slow and painful. Asgolt watched with envy as Flan made his way up, his breathing never quickening nor his stride faltering. Asgolt felt as if he weighed a ton, but stubbornly refused to discard his armor. He cursed the soft living and resolved to spend more time in the field, refusing to admit that age had anything to do with it. The land leveled, and the going became easier. Asgalt pointed. There's a stream over there. Good place to rest a moment. Afterwards, it's a bad climb, but we'll have a good place to sleep. It eases off in the morning. Aethne greeted the small stream and pond with a cry of pleasure. Quickly she ran and jumped in it. Flan and Asgalt both smiled, and Flan quickly followed the girl. Asgalt slipped off his armor, and the release from the weight felt good. Then he, too, slipped into the pool. But knowledge of what was ahead of them and what was behind them made the stay brief. Asgalt brought the spears back, leaned them against the rock, and spread their clothes to dry. They finished the last of the food, drank some water, then slowly dressed. Just as they had finished dressing, Flan looked back up the stream, and his voice was cold and flat. Well, we're in it now. Asgalt followed his gaze. There, beside his armor and the only way out, stood three Shang warriors. The duke grunted and spat disgustedly. Three fully armed men and us with only spears. 
He glanced around, and the bare rock walls loomed mockingly over him. He turned, plucked a knife from his belt, and casually tossed it to Aethne. Here, girl, in case we fail. Asgalt and Flan watched stoically as the three Shang closed their ranks and began a slow march toward them. Fully armed, the two would have been more than a match for the three. Fully armed, one alone may have won, but armed with nothing but a spear apiece and with no armor, their future looked dim indeed. Both were too experienced in combat to feel they had much chance. Suddenly the Shang stopped, and one pointed with a sword. Old man! Do you know me? Look well and long, for I mean to give your dead eyes a better view on the end of my lance. Asgalt snarled and roared. You spawn of a snake! I missed you once, but I won't now. He then spoke quietly to Flan. I know that dog. We fought once before, and my horse bolted before I could kill him. Then a spay woman said he would never die by my hand. Since then he's hoped to meet me. His voice grew low and urgent. Listen, we may stand a chance. He's convinced that I want to kill him myself. What I want you to do is charge with me. Then before we hit, fall back and stab whatever comes open. I'll hit alone. But whatever you do, keep glancing at Artor, the one with the red shield. The two gripped their spears and started forward. Their right hands gripped the butts, holding them tight and close to the hip while their left hands were extended along the shaft. Their pace quickened, and both pairs of eyes glanced left. Artur the Shang muttered low to his men, and their gait increased. Suddenly Asgalt broke into a run, and Flan quickly caught up with him, but just as contact was to be made, Flan dropped back. Asgalt's spear pointed directly at the man in the center, but eyes constantly glancing left, leaped forward, spun, and drove his spear directly into the face of the man on his right. The spearhead skimmed the top of the shield, smashed upward through the roof of the mouth and stuck in the bone of the skull. Wrenching his spear loose, he barely slid aside in time to avoid the shearing stroke of a sword. Off balance from missing his blow, the man stumbled. Asgalt grabbed his shield with one hand, spun him around, and drove his spear into his back. The duke looked up in time to see Artor's sword about to descend when Flan, in a clean hard lunge, drove his spear through the body of the Shang. The spear caught Artor under the arm and actually pierced the shield on the other side of his body. Artor staggered. Shock and pain clouded his face. He looked at Flan, then back to Asgold. You didn't kill me, he muttered. Then his eyes glazed. He fell heavily, twitched, and lay still. The rest of the climb was brutal. It seemed to Asgalt that he must have completely forgotten just how much physical exertion it required. He was thankful that the girl was sturdy, so that only a few times were they required to actually lift her. When they reached the ledge where they would make their camp, only pride kept him from collapsing at once. The Shang had all carried food bags, so at least there was now plenty to eat. The fare was plain, but all thought they had never tasted better. Asgalt, what do we face tomorrow? A short climb, then it's merely a hard walk. Once we reach the top, it'll be over. 
Flan looked quizzical. How did you build a bridge? We didn't build a bridge the first time we crossed. There used to be a tree, and we got a rope caught in it, and I swung across. We built it from the other side. It was while we were trying to raise an army. It was a good place to escape to if there was need. He was determined to keep the royal blood alive and we could hole up then dash across. We built the bridge from the other side, an old Lyof cage he was, designed it so that it would be easy to chop through from this side. Other side has rock foundations. Conversation died and the stars shone down, diamond bright in the crisp, clear night air. Asgalt leaned his blade against the rock and tried to sleep, but for a change sleep eluded him. He watched Aethne and Flan, heard the low, muted laughter, saw the looks into each other's eyes. He smiled to himself, and he remembered another girl, one with hair black as night and lips that were red and eyes that laughed. Another night, long ago, when he had sat with her and their eyes had met. He could still hear her laugh, see her smile and feel the touch of her hand. How the people had gasped when he had married her and made her a duchess. The life they had was good. The pain of losing her was still with him. It had been hard, but she had given him two strong sons and two beautiful daughters, and he must see that they were taken care of. He sat up and shook off the inexplicable nostalgia. Flan, let me interrupt you, children. He took off his ducal ring. Take this. It's foolish for me to pretend I'm not bone-tired, and the two of you can make better time down the mountain to the way station than I can. Take this, show it to the guard there, and grab two fast horses and go on to Castle Jagai. Give the ring to Olwen, and have him send riders out to raise the levy. He'll know what to do. Flan took the ring. I and I'll have him prepare a hero's welcome for his lord. Asgalt laughed. A hero, a hero. Hell, have him prepare for a tired old man. And Lyof will have parades and pageants after this is over. Now let me get some sleep. But the sleep was brief, and this time Asgalt awakened with both Aethne and Flan. Food was gulped hurriedly, and the last leg of the journey was begun. The last of the climb was hard but quick. As they reached the top, as if planned, all three turned in unison and looked back down the trail. Sun glinted off Shang armor. Shaking his head in disgust, the duke muttered, We're a lot alike, the Shang and I, we never let up and we never forget. The last portion was made at a dog trot over flat, firm earth. A quick turn, a small hill, and the bridge was before them. It spanned a chasm that was only the width of five tall men, but it extended out of sight on either side, and the eye was lost in the distance to the bottom. The bridge was a simple, crude affair, no railings, but two ropes on either side gave some security. Flan, go cut the ropes on that end while I undo these. He knelt and began working on the thick rope. By the time he had finished, Flan had cut both and was standing beside him. 
Asgalt stripped off his armor and began to fashion a sling to go around his body and between his legs. Once this was done, he turned to Flan and Aethne. You two go on ahead. I can cut the bridge loose from this side and cross on the two remaining ropes. This was in case we ever got caught on this side. I told you old Lyof was cagey. Flan shook his head. Let me climb down. I can cut them quicker than you. No, I helped build it. I'll cut it down. Now get on across. Asgalt secured the rope and lowered himself until he was even with the supporting posts of the bridge. He swung out and back until he had grasped a beam, then wedged himself between it and the cliff, wrapping his legs tight around the wood. He leaned back. He was tired and wanted to rest for a few minutes, but there wasn't time. He removed the axe from his belt and began to chop. The space was narrow, and the cut had to be made close to his body so that there was little room for a full swing. He swung the axe in short, hard blows, wrenching it to clear the blade on each stroke. His hand cramped and his forearm began to quiver with the strain, but he never ceased his relentless rhythm. It seemed to him that with each stroke the wood grew harder and the axe grew duller. But slowly, ever so slowly, the cut widened and deepened. He stopped, thrust the axe back through his belt and massaged his aching hand and forearm. A few more should do it, he thought. Damn will I be glad to rest in a bed again beside a nice warm fire. He hooked his knees about the beam and, trusting to the thick rope, leaned out, swinging the axe upward in vicious strokes as if the wood were a personal enemy. The wood cracked and broke loose, and Asgalt kicked out and swung free in case the whole bridge broke loose, but it sagged, creaked, and held. The duke ignored the yawning chasm below him and cursed with a fervor and feeling that was awesome in its intensity. Still cursing, he pulled himself back up the rope, attached it on the other side, and began the whole process over. Sweat stung his eyes, and his back began to ache from the strained, unnatural position. He worked more slowly and would stop after several strokes to gauge the depth of the cut and to clear his vision. The bridge creaked and sagged even further as the amount of wood holding it grew less. After what seemed hours, the top began to splinter and snap. He quickly slipped off the beam and, as he kicked back and away, swung the axe once more. The axe bit. The wood cracked, and the bridge slipped downward, grabbing the axe, flipping it loose from his grip. Then bridge and axe fell end over end into the depths below. Asgalt watched the dwindling shapes. Mm, man could starve before he hit bottom, he thought. Again he pulled himself up the rope, this time more slowly. A shout greeted him, and he saw Flan and Aethne wave from the other side. Well done, Lord Duke, well done! Asgalt waved tiredly. Even his bones ached. His forearms quivered uncontrollably, and his knees were flaccid, almost unable to bear his weight. He sat down heavily, his body worn and his eyes dulled with fatigue. His hand aimlessly gripped the hilt of his sword. He gazed blindly at the mail shirt, helmet, and shield that lay at his feet. Wearily he rose and walked back along the path. Far down he could see the first of the Shang as they made the turn, walking cautiously, expecting an ambush behind every rock. Still time, he muttered under his breath. He walked back and picked up his mail, slipped it on, 
and buckled the sword about his waist. The familiar weight felt comforting, an old friend. Once again he sat down on the rock, ignoring the urgent shouts from Flan and Aethne. He chuckled to himself. They're right. I'm growing old. Old Lyulf was right. It comes before you know, and soon you don't even care. He looked across the gorge to Flan and Aethne, and their youthful figures brought back a flood of memories, and his past life fled across his mind's eye. He remembered the aimless wanderings, the battles. He stood again on the walls of Castle Glown, with Colwyn beside him, holding the breach against attack after attack until the enemy fell back, dismayed and broken and not being able to break two men. He wandered again, guarding the life of the king and the young prince, and he remembered the final charge in the battle for the crown, the foes falling before him until he had reached the standard, cutting down the bearer and then with one stroke cutting through the helmet, head, and chest of Morgon. He realized suddenly that life had been good to him that he had achieved a great deal, and that now the battles were over. All he had to do was walk across that rope bridge. There would be parades and feasts and even tournaments all in his honor, and once that was over, there would be a quiet life for the remainder of his years. He would grow old and slightly fat, and honors would still be heaped on him. His sons were near grown, and his daughters already promised. The kingdom was secure, no new threats, no new battles. He thought of how nice it would be to sleep in a soft bed, to take an attractive serving girl to the same bed. Yes, life would be pleasant until that final sleep in that same soft bed. The Duke of Jagai stood and warily reached for his helmet and shield, an old man, gray hair glinting in the sun, and tired beyond belief. The sword flashed in a short, bright arc, and the rope parted and twisted its way downward. The years of fatigue seemed to melt from his body as he buckled his helmet and dressed his shield on his arm. He stood straight and tall and strong, and his eyes were hell-bright. With a strong and steady stride, Asgalt, Duke of Jagai, marched down to meet the Shang. This has been The Age of the Warrior by Hank Reinhardt, read by Jeff Aguiar. Thank you, Jeff. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Christopher Chifani, Jeff Aguiar, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a massive virtual painting of the triple sunset from the surface of Planet A in star system HD 132563 photoshopped and enhanced for human electromagnetic perception by the godlike aliens who inhabit the gas giant there, and a patriotic barrage of beer-powered fireworks of gratitude to Bane cover artist Kurt Miller, and to Hank Reinhardt, who we know roams the hearty halls of Valhalla, even now. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars, 